One of the things we tried to to do in our discipline time throughout the year is to talk about different ways to give you meaningful time in your of prayer and meaningful time of reading the Bible uh, throughout your week, throughout your month, throughout your year. Strategies for reading the Bible, strategies for keeping things fresh. Recently, I was in Colossians 3, and something that, that uh, stands out to me in the middle of the chapter is, is something that I, I hope every one of you guys has some amount of in your life, and if this is really great already, if this area of your life is a strong area already, um, I pray that this encourages you to excel even more, and if this is an area where uh, maybe there's some room to grow, I I pray that this does this. Um, Paul is writing to a church that he's never actually seen. At the beginning of the the letter, you see that um, Epaphras was the one who went to the church in Colossae and preached the gospel to them, and God was kind, and he rose up a church and rose up men to lead the church. Paul is writing to them to give them clear instruction from the Lord. and He instructs them with a lot of things. Um, chapter 3, he starts to talk about how they should live together with one another. And uh, what I want to do is I want to read verses 12 to 17. I want to ask you to notice the three times in verses 15, 16, and 17 that Paul puts in front of the guys, in front of the church, guys and girls, the idea of thankfulness. Thanksgiving, thanks, gratitude. Um, After we read this, we're going to jump around to a few places and and see why it is that the believer should have thankfulness as a a constant part of their life. So he's spoken to them about their position in Christ, their identity in Christ, how they get saved, the work of Christ earlier in the letter. Starting in verse 12, he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, so he's talking to believers, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So there's lots of instruction here on how it is that the the body is to interact with one another. But right along with how the body is to treat one another and how they're to conduct themselves in relationship with one another, right on the same par, right on the same level with all of this, is the idea that the believer is to be a thankful believer. He's to be full of thanksgiving. We see it in in verse 15. Um, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called. So the, the believer is to have peace with God and peace with one another. And they're to be thankful in the same way that that peace is to rule in their lives. In the same way in verse 16 that Christ is, the word of Christ is to richly dwell within us and how that fleshes itself out. Um, Corporately, you see the believer singing with thankfulness in their hearts. There's a a corporate mandate to, to corporate thanksgiving there. And in verse 17, in whatever you do, you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through Christ to God. So this this idea of thankfulness is to be ongoing in our lives in whatever we're doing. And I think we can all look back on a number of things this week and we can be thankful for 
work, we can be thankful for our retirement, we can be thankful for provision and clothing and all of that. But what I want to do is, is point to a much grander, a much larger thing that, that every believer should truly, truly be thankful for. And so to do that, we're going to, we're going to jump in our Bibles back to Leviticus chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, let's go back there for just a couple minutes. Uh, Moses is in the middle of giving Israel the first giving of the law, Leviticus 19. He's right in the middle of this big, long delivery of the law to the nation of Israel. And he says to them in verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 2, the Lord is speaking to Moses. Here's what you're to tell Israel. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel. Say to them, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Right in the middle of this giant delivery of the law, God says, I am holy. So you need to be holy too. And you'll see it throughout the giving of the law. If you turn to the right by three chapters and you go to Leviticus Leviticus 22, right at the beginning of that chapter, um, we read that not only is God holy, but his name is holy. Leviticus 22.2. Do not profane my holy name. I am Yahweh. God is holy. And so every believer, what we need to keep in front of ourselves in some measure, is the idea that we, we have this God who is completely separate from any sin. The idea of holiness means that, that God is separate from sin. And it means that, that he's different. He's on another level from, from every believer in the sense that, that sin has never been a part of him, never been a part of who he is, never been a part of his nature, never been like that. What that tells us is that, that when in our lifetime, the sin that we commit in our lifetime, it's an offense against God that's, that's of a magnitude that's greater than we understand. So as it relates to thanksgiving, we'll get there in a second, but one of the things that helps us understand and provide the framework for proper thanksgiving before the Lord is to understand that, that our offense against God and our sin against him is of a greater magnitude than we could ever understand. Uh, the believer for eternity will, will be amazed at a number of things about God, and one of them is his holiness. The believer will have a resurrected body that has a, a capacity in its mind that is much greater than we have today. Um, but still, for eternity, we will be amazed at a number of things about God, and one of them is His holiness. And so uh, the things that we, that we have done that are sinful before God, um, they are offenses against God that are a greater magnitude than, than we could ever imagine. Um, so God is a holy God, and... What I want to show you, if we turn to the right and we go to one of the minor prophets, we're going to go to the book of Nahum, right in the middle of the minor prophets, where God starts his letter, and he starts the book of Nahum by telling us exactly what he does in response to offense against him. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So if you get to Micah, you're close. Let's keep going to the right. Here is God's delivery of a message to the nation of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 1, describes the author. Chapter 1, verse 2, tells us things about God. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. We have a holy God who is an avenging God. He avenges every offense against himself. Verse 3, Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
there is there is this idea of God and he does not leave offense against him unpunished. Uh, we're going towards thankfulness. We're going towards that. Um, so here we have a holy God, more holy than we can understand. We have an avenging God. And in the same way that his holiness is beyond our capacity to comprehend, his vengeance is also beyond our capacity to comprehend, both in its magnitude, in a lake of fire forever, um, with a kind of torment that, that we don't have the capacity to understand here from our human experience, uh, both, in it, both in its magnitude and in its duration. Um, God avenges in a way that, that is consistent with his character. He's not, he doesn't avenge in a way that's consistent with our understanding. And that's really, really sobering. Um, every one of us can think of a long list of things that, that we've done that, that make us deserve this from our God. So that's a really good foundation. Um, what I want to put in front of you guys every day is, is what Christ has done. The work of Christ as a propitiation for the sin of all of those who have trusted in him means that Jesus satisfied God's wrath completely, both in its magnitude and its duration, in six hours on a cross uh, for everybody who would trust in him. So when you're reading your Bible in the morning, um, this is what God has done for me. He has put me in a place where every one of my offenses against him, which there are more than, there are so many of them I can't remember them all, and there's ones that I do that I don't even know about, <coughs> that he knows about. Um, he has taken all of those, those offenses against him. He's summed them up. He's measured out the right wrath that, that's much bigger than we can imagine. And he poured that out on Jesus in six hours and completely satisfied every bit of avenging wrath that he had against us. Every bit of it. And we are not responsible for avenging any of it or satisfying any of it before God. And so when you look at this, and you we'll go back to Colossians now, um, the believer is, is talking, the, the passage is talking about the relationship that the believer has to one another. Behave towards one another in all of these ways. Um, but the peace of Christ that, that rules in your heart you have that peace because you no longer are under God's wrath and God's avenging anger against you. You have that peace. There's no peace apart from that. And because you have that peace, you can have a right kind of peace with, with the guy who's sitting next to you here this morning. Um, when the word of Christ is richly dwelling within you, uh, the word of Christ describing what he has done to save you from the offense that you had against God, um, and you can encourage one another, you can teach one another, you can admonish one another with those truths. That is why you sing with songs and hymns that are thankful. That are thankful. Um, and so whatever you're doing, when you, when you go to work on Monday morning, or you go to work tomorrow, um, you're, you're preparing for work tomorrow, or whatever it is you're doing, um, Thanksgiving needs to be overflowing from our heart. So what I want to encourage you men to do is, is when you open your Bible, um, if it's not already a part of your life, um, if it is wonderful and keep excelling still more, but if, it, if thanksgiving to God for what he has done for you, genuine heartfelt thanksgiving, and just agreeing with God that what he's done for you is, is something that's more substantial than you could ever comprehend, um, begin walking down that road. Begin begin to grow in being a man who is exceedingly thankful. And I hope that's one of the things that, that we all take from this, this time and build together this year is that we have a better comprehension of the fact that what's been done for us is something that, that we, we know as far as we can comprehend. It's been, 
it's wonderful, but it, but the magnitude of it is something that we just can't comprehend in this world, and we're going to be blown away in eternity with, with the truth of what that's really like. So what, what, I, what I hope and pray and want to leave with you guys this morning is, is um, grow and grow and grow in your heart of thankfulness to God uh, for what he's done. Uh, when most of us breathe our last on this earth, we will have been believers for a number of decades, three, four, five decades. Uh, my mom is still alive, and she's actually known Christ for seven decades. Uh, but in those years, let, let's never grow complacent about what was done to save us. Um, as we get closer to the prize and the reward and the, the satisfaction and the bliss and the joy of, of being with Christ forever, um, let's have our thankfulness grow accordingly um, because the reality of what is coming is, is getting closer and closer and closer for every one of us, whether it's 30 years or 40 years or, or three years from now for any of us. So this morning what I want to leave with you guys is just the idea of being being thankful men for what was done for you. Um, never, never grow weary of that. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, this morning want to quickly um, just remind ourselves as we talk to you that we, that we know we are still men who are in need of a Savior. And we are so thankful for your word that reveals this to us. Your word reveals you to us most importantly and God how we interpret your words really matters um, we do not like it when people approach our words that we speak uh, in a cavalier or careless way how much more so should we be careful with your words which reveal you I pray Lord that you might uh, help us to make some sense of um, this whole topic that uh, Lord you would help me to make this accessible and understandable and that Lord my, my brothers who would be encouraged that um, understanding the meaning in your Bible maybe isn't as difficult as it might seem uh, but it is a more sobering uh, pursuit than maybe what it seems and so I pray Lord that you would have your way in our hearts this morning and we ask it in Jesus name Amen all right, uh, this lesson on hermeneutics, we're calling it Honoring the Lord and Controlling Ourselves. Um, that might be a surprising for you to consider, but actually reading and studying your Bible, it involves a lot of self-control, a lot of self-control. When we read God's Word, um, there actually, and you know this to be true personally from your own experience, there, there's an endless sea of temptations in your mind that... Um, tempt you to run from God's word on the page before you to other ideas, maybe other things you've learned before, other books you've read before, concepts you heard that were taught in a sermon or at a conference, your own experience, maybe even another Bible passage comes to your mind, um, and the next thing you know, you've quickly left the passage on the page that you were looking at, and you're not even looking at those words anymore. And all of that can happen in a matter of seconds. Um, Next thing you know, you're making decisions about what that passage means, but you left those words on the page long ago and you arrived at a foreign destination that may or may not resemble what that passage is um, originally intending. And what I want to keep doing today over and over for you is just keep drawing you back to the way that language works, the way that words work. Um, I think Christians are a unique group of people who do really weird things with one book. Um, we don't do it with history books. 
You don't read yourself into the invasion of Normandy to somehow try to get significance or meaning from that. You don't have to do that. You don't even, it doesn't even cross your mind to do that, but we do that over and over with one book, the most important book. And so what I want to do this morning is keep drawing you back to the way that language works. So let me ask you this. What would you think of someone doing that to your words where, where perhaps they've got in their hands a love letter you wrote to your spouse? They started with your words, but then perhaps they were reminded of, of a scene from their favorite romantic comedy or their favorite song back from high school that triggers all kinds of romantic thoughts. And they're talking about that and they're thinking about that. And the next thing you know, they're someplace far away from the words that they're holding in their hand from your love letter to your wife. Would you want them to treat your words that way? And the answer, of course, is no. And that's a silly example. But it would be right for you to say to that person, um, you actually need to um, control yourself with my words. Those are mine. I had, an, I had a meaning that I intended. And the same thing must happen with God's word as we approach it. We need to control ourselves. Hermeneutics, in my estimation, is first and foremost an issue of self-control before it is a, a, a strategy or a technique or a bunch of uh, the application of rules and uh, guidelines to understand the meaning of a text. So we just need to extend to God the same courtesy. Uh, his words are just a little bit more important than ours, are they not? And so we should control ourselves. How do you do that? How do you control yourself as you approach um, God's word? Well, that's exactly, in my mind, what hermeneutics is. It is a, a collection of guidelines to set before you that help you to restrain you um, so that you don't quickly leave his words on the page that you're studying to get to other interesting ideas in your head. And we call that hermeneutics. Um, so one of the aims that I have this morning is, is to demystify the Bible's meaning or the interpretation process of getting to the Bible's meaning. It's not as mysterious as you think it is. You don't do something completely different with God's word that you don't do with your own words or you don't do in an, your own conversation with somebody at lunch. You already know how to interpret what's being said to you. And you have an expectation for how you want people to interpret your words. And that's not a mystery to you, day in and day out. And what I want to say is it's easier than you think. And it's more sobering than you think. And those two things have to pull on you um, at the same time. The very first step that is the best to take when you come to study or reading God's word is, as you see there on your paper, prayerfully position yourself under the word of God, under the God of the word. Um, and really what, I'm not going to go through and read this prayer. I think you've got this in your notebook somewhere, uh, but we reprinted it in your lesson here today. What you're doing with the first um, step here is you're asking yourself, what kind of interpreter do I want to be? That's probably the most important question and most important thing to do first. What kind of a man am I going to be right now as I'm going to study the Word of God? Um, you need to be the right kind of interpreter. So I'm not going to go through and read um, each of the paragraphs, but what I want to do is I want to kind of just give you a a sense of what each paragraph is about. The one that starts with Heavenly Father, and then there's a paragraph. Really what you're trying to do in that part of the prayer is you're trying to vertically um, align yourself toward God. You're trying to say, oh yeah, um, God is God and I am not, and I want to be a worshiper right now. The best interpreter is a worshiper. Okay? 
And so that's what you're trying to do. You're just trying to vertically align yourself towards God. And then there are four answers to this question. Why have I prayerfully come before you with my Bible open today? You need to have a good answer for that question when you open your Bible. Ask yourself over and over when you open your Bible in the morning or whenever you're doing your reading, why am I here? What am I doing right now? You need to have a good answer to that. I've provided four of them for you. The first paragraph is just express something in you of a desire to know God. I am here because I just want to know you, God. I want to know you. That's why I'm here. Now, how are you going to get to the meaning of his words if that's not the desire of your heart, first and foremost, to know him? You're going to be uh, have a, a very truncated approach if you don't want to know him. The second paragraph there, the second answer, express something of your ongoing need to know how the nature of sin is, is so dangerous. When you're reading in the Old Testament and you see something of the sin of Israel being committed, do not sit there and think, I am separated by thousands of years and I ha that's not me. I, I'm not an idol worshiper. No, what you're watching is not an Israelite or a Jewish problem. You're looking at a, a human problem of which you are a part of. And there's something about the nature of sin going on in there that you, when you see it in somebody else, you should go, oh my goodness, that nature of sin is in me. I need to look. So as you're approaching God's word, what do you need to know more about sin yet? Um, the next answer um, express something of your need for the gospel. When you have done that and you see the nature of sin in somebody else and then you are able to draw a very short, direct line from them to you, the next thing to do is you, you just go to the gospel in your mind as you're, um, as you're thinking about what you're reading and studying. And then finally, um, express something of a desire in your prayer as you are answering the question, why am I here? I, I want to live a righteous life. I want, to, I want to know what holiness of life looks like. So when you're reading something in the Old Testament or reading about Paul in the New Testament and, and he is living righteously before um, his persecutors, think, well, that's not me. That's, it's not you, by the way. But there's something of the nature of righteousness that's going on in him that must be true in you too, right? So express something of a desire. And then the next paragraph is kind of a summary um, express something of how you know this needs to make an impact on the rest of your day. What you're doing, again, in this whole prayer here, and praying something like this, what you're doing, first of all, is you're disciplining yourself. You're controlling yourself, and you're saying, ah, why am I before the Bible? To worship and know this God. That's the, a, a good place to start every time you're going to study. And don't just naturally assume that you'll naturally be there, automatically there. You are not always um, a worshiper like you should be. You must control yourself, discipline yourself, direct yourself, guide yourself to such a place. So discipline yourself to be this way. Um, the issue to settle before you interpret anything is what kind of interpreter do you want to be? Okay, That's the place to start. Now, number two, expect a single, clear meaning when you approach the Bible. Okay, When you approach the Bible... This is not some spy communication from hostile territory back to the base, and you need a decoder ring to figure it out. <clears throat> Expect a, a, a clear, single meaning. One meaning and a clear meaning. When was the last time, guys, you wrote an email to your employees, to your employer, to your wife, to whoever? When was the last time you texted? When was the last time 
you had a Facebook post so as to not be understood. You thought, you know, I'm going to write this email and I want nobody to get it. <laughs> nobody communicates that way. Nobody communicates that way. You want your spouse, you want your children, you want your employees, your boss, your students, your teacher, you want them to understand you. You expect to be understood when you communicate. And, guys, let me ask you this. When was the last time you intended to communicate two equally valid coexistent meanings from the same set of words that it could go either way? And both of them, chosen at the same time, are legitimate. Language actually doesn't even allow you to do that. Because you have never communicated, where you, number one, you didn't want to be understood. Secondly, you've never communicated in a way where there were two equally possible legitimate meanings from the same set of words. There's only one meaning in your words when you communicate. Even when you're trying to deceive, you have one meaning in mind. Okay? You want the person hearing your words to conclude one meaning because that's what you intend. Language and communication are gifts from God which allow us to make unseen ideas in our heads clear and visible and revealed to others. Language and communications and communication is that kind of a gift. We all communicate in order to be understood in these ways. When, when people speak, we listen expecting to find how many different meanings from them. One. Now, you might have to do some work to find it, but there's only one. That's what you expect. So you already know how language works. Now, just do the same thing with God's Word. Um, let me turn you to Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. If that's the way that language works, guys, God can be understood. Do you know why? Because like you, before you, he meant to be understood when he was communicating. The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood, just like you communicate so as to be understood. Look at 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. The Lord expected the offspring of Jacob to understand him because his meaning in his words were not secret. They were not unfindable. Um, they only ever had been out in plain sight before Israel. He communicated to them so as to be understood. A clear, a clear meaning is present. That's God's intent when he wrote. And again, guys, the, the Bible is not a spy's communication back you know, from behind enemy lines back to base and you need some kind of a machine to decipher its meaning. Uh, go to De Deuteronomy 29. 29. This is such a helpful verse. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Moses says, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, 
that we may observe all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God has not communicated everything he knows or everything he has planned to do for man. He has not, and you guys know that. There are still some secret things that belong to him. But there are revealed things that belong to us, belong to Israel, belong to us who read the Bible. In other words, God expects that man understand those things that he's revealed. God does not hold us accountable to understand his secret things that he has not revealed. Does that make sense? You cannot understand what I am not thinking that I'm not telling you, or that I'm thinking but I'm not telling you. And the same is true for God. And notice the extent to which God expects understanding. What does he say? What's the purpose of these things being revealed to uh, Israel? So that what? How does it end? What does it say? That we may observe. What does that mean? Keep them. Obey. So how clear do you have to understand if you're going to obey it? You've got to grasp it, right? So that's how clear God expects um, his meaning to be found or to be seen and to be understood. One meaning, a clear one. Now, guys, that does not mean that every page of Scripture is easy to understand um, or that you'll never have to put in any effort. Um, All you have to do is have a communication with your wife later today to understand that you have to work to understand each other sometimes, and you have to work to understand God's Word. The problem is not with God's Word, though. The problem is we are uh, flawed communicators, receptors, receivers of communication. Peter assured his readers that Paul's words were very difficult to understand, right? Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. Um, so we read and we study God's word, expecting guys to discover one coherent message after another, from one passage after the next to the next. Even though it might take us some study, some patience, and some careful thought. Again, we, we expect to discover one meaning in each text, not several. That's exactly what we expect others to find when we communicate to them. There's one thing I'm trying to communicate to you, and that's it. I don't have two equally valid communications from my one set of words. It just doesn't work that way. Can you imagine the chaos of life if there actually were two sets of meanings from the same set of words? There are not two different but legitimate interpretations to your words and neither to God's words. Um two different interpretations of my words, the two people both cannot be right. And so when you have two Christians who disagree about what a passage means, both of them cannot be right. That's just the way language works. And it's that simple. And we should be humble. Uh, Not trying to conquer or to win, but we should want to be more concerned that we are that I'm getting and representing his words accurately. The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. He didn't speak in a secret place. The the secret things belong to him. The revealed things belong to us. So discipline yourself first as you approach the word of God after you've thought about what kind of interpreter do you want to be. Now I'm coming and I I have expectation. I have expectation that the, the, the meaning is clear because God meant it to be clear. And I'm going to find one meaning in my passage. Okay? One meaning. Control yourself for that. Yeah? Could you provide clarification on one thing? So I'll just give one example. Sure. There's tons of them. 
Um, Numbers 2011 says that Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock with his staff twice. So it's, it's clear it was a historical event, mm -hmm. struck the rock. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that rock was Christ. Yeah. Um, and you don't see that in that no. context, but you see yeah. Paul looking back on it. And there's lots of examples yeah. where you see Christ in yeah. the Old Testament. Great so there's question. different levels in that yeah, single the, clear meaning. Well, that's the question. You, what you've got there is, and this, the, especially the New Testament use of the Old Testament is the most um, intricate, tangled forest to make your way through. And if you start by um, reading what other people have read about it, you probably find you probably get lost and never get out. Um, and I don't know what else you're supposed to do. Everybody's trying to make sense of that. The issue is: is Paul in any New Testament text like that? Is Paul telling you what the meaning was? Or is Paul adding new revelation on top of that revelation? That Old Testament revelation numbers has its meaning that stands on its own and it was clear and is clear. And now Paul says something and he's making a link to it, but he's adding new revelation. There's all kinds of things to consider. Is the New Testament writer interpreting is he adding more truth to stand next to that truth? Is he influenced by that and creating a new meaning because he's just influenced by what the Bible's themes are? There's all kinds of questions to ask rather than first say, well, he's revealing a, a, a hidden meaning in it. Um, I think those are important questions to ask first before you get there. So I'm not really answering your question, but I'm telling you, Okay, the, the question is, what is Paul doing? And how is that passage, um, how is he relating to that passage? If, if the only option for every New Testament writer is they are always, every single time, telling us they're interpreting an Old Testament passage, out of Egypt I called my son, we're in trouble. <laughs> because now language doesn't work the way language works. So there's some very, uh, Abner Chow has a very good book to at least get some, um, get you thinking in, in some really interesting directions. That It's a new book that's out on hermeneutics. It's a good one. Um, you won't agree with everything he says. I don't know any one book. You won't agree with everything I think. But uh, anyway, yeah. Is it, I'm kind of trying to piggyback here, correct me if I'm wrong. When you think through the singularity that you're referring to, is it healthy to think through that as, just because you're, we're saying that there's a singular meaning in something, mm -hmm. that in the literal sense of what you're reading at that time, there's nothing to stack on it. Like the singular, it's it's multiple meanings beside each other, not within, not within a sentence. Yeah, yeah I think <clears throat> I think you want to think of it that way. That um, there's a, I'll do it from left to right your way. There's Numbers 11, and it has its meaning, and then you you just keep taking the singular meanings of each text of each passage. One plus one plus one plus one yeah. plus one down the line. Yeah. Instead. And you're, you're doing that. And then at some point down here, even in the Old Testament, you have later prophets re referring back to, you know, it's stuff in the Pentateuch. And so you have to, um, that's called intertextuality. There's this, there's this awareness within scripture of scripture, other scripture. And how are they think? The question to always ask yourself is not, don't just automatically go, well, he's, he's interpreting that, and I just don't see that back there. How did he do that? Oh, he's, he's got something special from God because he's doing that. And 
and that's one way of looking at it. Um, another way to look at it is just to stop first and ask yourself, okay, um, what, what might be going on there? It, it might not be interpretation. It might be inspiration. What is inspiration? Uh, another key element is being added. For instance, let me give you an example. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul goes through and he gives the, the, uh, the armor of God. Do you know where that comes from? I mean, that's what Messiah wears when he comes. Are you Messiah? Is Paul interpreting that? Telling us what actually what the prophet in the Old Testament meant is it actually wasn't Messiah. And what, he's not going to actually wear that when he comes. But you wear it. That's not what he's doing. But Paul's influenced. And he knows the victory in which Messiah will be robed. And the power and the equipping he will have. And now he's adding something new for us that doesn't change that Old Testament meaning. But something new gets added, and we wear that kind of stuff? Messiah's garb? Today? Not when he comes back? You see, that's, that's something that's even more profound to really think about. Rather than say, well, that's what he meant back there. He's interpreting it. Do you understand? You just have to ask yourself a ton of questions and move slowly. Yeah, you so. have to add and not mix. Yeah, I, w I would be more inclined to add first rather than mix. Now, there are some times where that, um, the, the New Testament writer is actually telling you what was meant by that in the Old Testament. And um, I think the example you gave, Daniel, is probably one of the most difficult. There are some that are just really hard to figure out. Really hard. So, Scott, Scott real quick. Yeah. When, you, when you say that, you know, something you said from the New Testament to inter interpret the Old Testament mm -hmm. a certain way, do you mean that in the sense of replacement? No. Or you mean you still are maintaining that for the purpose? They're not of replacing. They're two telling singularities you. to link yeah. together. Look, okay. if if language works the way that language always works, where one set of words contains a meaning, and we'll talk about where meaning is rooted in a little bit here. Um, I think meaning is primarily rooted in the sentence level, not in the word level. Words have meaning, but when you string them together, now the sentence has meaning. So if that's the way that language has always been, the Old Testament passages that God um, reveals to us have one meaning. And when does that change over time? Uh, it would only change if God says it changes. And then all of a sudden, now how does language work? Or... Um, so you're just better off to, I think, first try to go with a uh, what's being added. Um, and, and the mind of God is, gosh, I mean, you, you guys know, I mean, it, it is deep, it is infinite, and he may be doing something uh, that you, you and I will spend all of our lifetimes put together and what we won't understand very clearly. Um, but I wouldn't want to just rush quickly to say, well, now there's a new meaning and the, the old meaning is replaced. Uh, that... Okay, so what has he said in the New Testament? Will that be replaced? People trusted in those words. Israel trusted in that God. There's, there's um, character associated. He says, I speak righteousness. Remember that in Isaiah 45, verse 19. Um, he said, I didn't speak in a secret place. I speak righteousness. So he could have said, I, I don't speak in um, a secret place. I speak openly, but he didn't say openly. The contrast to secret is righteousness. And so when he speaks, can you count on it? Could they count on it? They banked on it. The, everything about them, all of a sudden now we're telling them, it doesn't mean that anymore. 
What do they do with that? Those promises were not yet fulfilled, are not yet fulfilled. What are they doing with that? If he did it once to them, will he do it with us? There's all kinds of character issues that go in with this and tons of disagreement from theologians over the centuries. So I don't want to get bogged down too much more. I'll take one more quick question, Steve, and I may choose to not answer it. But go ahead. <laughs> you might, you might. Yeah. Especially since it's coming from you. But go ahead. I heard how you talk to your wife. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> if I am as flawed as I am, and if you pass a judgment It is, except for the fact that it's your God who spoke and you need to labor to know him. That, that may mean you'll, you'll be waiting in the shallow end of the pool where they've gone into the deep end and got lost, but wait, get your toes wet because you need to know him. That's what you do. Mike? Why do you cry uncle and just go to a concordance? You can do that too. <laughs> And uh, sometimes that, that can be really helpful. So, yeah, you guys, just don't, don't give up. But, but what I'm trying to say to you, and by the way, how many of those passages are there in the Bible? Th- there are plenty. But that's not where you spend all of your, most of your time when you're reading and you're studying. Um, and what I'm trying to tell you is that even though there may be some things that you're un- you don't understand, how on earth is Christ the rock in that um, language is language. And, and the word, the communication became flesh. God associate the second member of the Godhead associates himself with communication. Words are not God, but God is the word become flesh. And so he is bound up in the way communication works and he made us like him and we understand that and language works a certain way. That's your center of gravity, okay, as you interpret. I'm going to move on, okay? Number three, hold fast to the normal use of words and language. Okay, we read and we study the Bible following the practices that we consider normal for any other important document. Okay, when you come home from work and you find a note on the counter letting you know that the light in the hallway is out, you don't all of a sudden read the note in a way that concludes spiritual darkness is welling up in your house. (laughs) You don't, that's just not the normal way that language works. Um... Rather, you read the note normally and you put a new bulb in the hallway. That's normal interpretation of the note. Um, That's the normal meaning. And we need to read our Bibles the same type of way. Uh, That practice of reading your Bible normally in that sense has a fancy name. It's literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. Normal reading or normal interpretation means that statements are assumed to be literal unless... uh, it is evident that the author is using a figure of speech. And by the way, metaphors are a normal part of communication as well, are they not? And when you use a metaphor, you are not intending to cloud your meaning. You're doing exactly the opposite. You're intending to do what by using a metaphor? Make it more clear, right? So, for example, when Jesus says, I am the door in John chapter 10, he didn't say that to confuse the truth about who he is. He did it to what? Reveal more about what he's like. So we don't conclude that Jesus is made of wood and he swings on hinges. We, we, we now get to just naturally get it. I mean, our minds just intuitively go, oh, I know he's not talking about a literal door. Normal approach to language 
accommodates metaphor or figures of speech where there's a resemblance between um, the, the, the figure of speech and the reality or the person that's there. We naturally understood and understand that the Lord is using imagery. Um, our minds intuitively see that. Um, we know that the literal meaning doesn't work, so we go for the metaphor in our minds. You don't even have to tell yourself to do that. It just naturally happens. You get it. But even then, when you're trying to get and figure out what, what does he mean by that, it, it's helpful to go to the literal meaning of a door. Okay, What is a door? What's the purpose of a door? Having asked that, then you can say, what was Jesus trying to communicate by suggesting his metaphoric resemblance of a door? Well, the literal or the normal use of an actual door actually guides the meaning of the figure. Jesus is the entrance. He is the gateway to eternal life. Um, and it's also important to understand that the author and the context gets to determine the meaning of any metaphor, not the reader. When you use a metaphor, you do not allow other people to determine what the metaphor is or when you're using metaphors. You're the one who gets to say, no, that was I was speaking metaphorically. I was using a figure of speech. Okay? So as we read the Bibles, we our Bible, we don't get to be the one to determine when a metaphor is being used and when it's not. God does. The context will guide you in that, okay? Alright, so discipline yourself to look for just a normal use of words and language. How about um, number four? Read the passage of the book repeatedly to make observations. Now, you see a whole lot of, uh, I got a list there for you. I'm going to talk for just a, a few moments before that. I try to give you a little space on your, on your notes there. There are different helpful ways to read scripture. And I, and, and I, I use this illustration each year when I, when I teach this. Uh, let me give you this illustration. Let's say you inherited a ranch that you've never seen before and it's in Montana. Some long-lost relative left you this massive, sprawling ranch. Um, how might you go there and get to know that land? There's a couple of different ways you can do that. One, you could get out and you could walk it. And you would get to know that land step by step, piece by piece. Okay. Another way to get to know that sprawling ranch would be to fly over it. And then you would be able to see as much of it at once as you possibly could. Now, let me ask you this question. Which of those two approaches of getting to know your ranch is the right way to do it, and which one's the wrong way to do it? It's a dumb question. Neither one is wrong, and neither one is necessarily the right way. They're, they're both helpful, right? You'd want to try to do it for both ways, benefit from both. So when you study God's Word, there are two ways to get to know your passage also. One is walk through it word by word, piece by piece. Another way to do it is to also get some altitude and see where your passage fits in the whole that surrounds it. See as much of it as you can. Uh, there's two different reading styles. Some, and, and you need to know which guy you're like, okay? Um, one reading style uh, reads very little of the Bible, but reads very intensely. I mean, you could be in three verses for an hour, that kind of guy. He's reading, he's reading, he's just studying. And um, another guy is, is a kind of guy who likes to read a lot, and he just can't stop reading because he's trying to scan the horizon. He wants to see the edge, and the horizon just keeps going out in front of him, and he just keeps going, he just keeps reading and reading and reading. And so now let me ask you this question. Which of those two approaches to Scripture is right? Which one's wrong? They're not. Don't pit those kinds of readings against each other. 
Use them both. You need them both. You need to know which kind of guy you are. Some of you are inclined more to be the one, and that's all you do. And over the last year, you've read 12 verses because you are studying so deeply through... Um, that's, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But you read very little because you are, you are convinced and you just love and you benefit from and you thrive on digging deeply, and that is good. And nobody here is telling you to stop that. But when you come to build and you hear reading plan, read through the Bible in a year, that's to stretch you because you need to get in an airplane and you need to fly and you need to see it and you need to let the horizon keep going out in front of you. And so some of you feel very uh, stretched. You feel compromised because you're being asked to read a lot of scripture. Those of you guys in the other camp who just love to read and read and read, nobody here is telling you to stop doing that. But what you're going to start hearing is pick a passage and slow down and dig. And you'll feel compromised because you just gain so much from reading big chunks of scripture. And the point is, again, don't pit either one of those against each other. You need both of them. You need to know which kind of guy you are so that you can help yourself grow um, and expand and be stretched a little bit. These questions lie uh, that you see here as you're studying, they lie at macro levels, they lie at micro levels. Macro being, you know, you're trying to see the whole at once. The micro, you're trying to see um, the specifics of the passage you're in. So that first grouping, you kind of see how I have those uh, questions in groups in the italicized um, font there. Uh, that first grouping, uh, if I can just summarize what the groupings are, we're not gonna look at every question. That first grouping is you're just trying to transplant yourself back into the author setting. You know how much you like it when somebody tries to get into your shoes and figure out what, you're, what it was like for you as you're communicating, right? You like that, right? You love that. Um, that's a good conversation when somebody can get in your shoes. That's what you're trying to do. So remember how much you like that and do that with God's word. That second grouping, uh, that larger grouping there, um, that's where you're going to actually look at words, phrases, statements themselves. You're looking at the pieces. Um, those are kinds of questions to help you examine the pieces. That third grouping that follows uh, is kind of like the first uh, grouping. Is You're asking yourself the question, why is this passage here? How important um, is why you said what you said in Scripture, when you said what you said in Scripture? God, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. Why did you say that now? Um, I'm not going to walk through this in detail, but one of my favorite things to do when we were going through Acts is we got to Acts chapter 12, and Acts chapter 12 is a very interesting passage. King Herod kills James. Um, he imprisons Peter. He's about to do the same thing to him, and then Herod goes up north, and he sees some people, and he's dressed all sparkly, and they say, the voice of a god and not a man, and he gets eaten by worms, and he dies. <coughs> And you're like, that is a weird place to put that in there. It's really cool, but it's really weird. Okay, so one of the things you can do is fly over that and back up and say, okay, what was going on in chapters 10 and 11? And then what's going to go on in chapter 13? That would, might give me some indication of what's going on in chapter 12. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, you get the, the repeated account of Peter going to a Gentile, Cornelius. It's so important that it wasn't enough for Luke to just explain it once when it happened, but he explained it again when Peter had to go tell the Jews what went on. And so it was that big of a deal for the Jews to get their heads around the believing Jews, the Messiah-believing Jews, that we're actually going to take the gospel to Gentiles. 
So not only did it get recorded when it happened, but it gets recorded when Peter tells it again. Okay? Skip chapter 12. Paul leaves Antioch and he goes to the Gentiles. So why on earth is it important to see in Acts chapter 12 a king killing some disciples and then another disciple being freed and that king biting the dust? No king is going to stop the gospel going to Gentiles. It's an important, and the way that you get that is not by putting your blinders on and going one verse at a time. You have to read bigger chunks of scripture to get um, other dimensions that are there for you. The last section there, that last grouping, just remind yourself again when you're done that you're a worshiper. These are some kinds of questions you want to start thinking about. How does this need to impact my life? Number five, understand the relationship between interpretation and application. Guys, this is so important, so important. There's an important relationship between the interpretation of a text that you're reading and the application of it to your life. Um, Let me give you, I'll try to give you a couple illustrations so that you get this. Here's a relationship between interpretation and application. Interpretation and application are like two back-to-back runners on a relay team. Interpretation of a passage runs its leg first and then hands off the baton to application interpretation stops running and now application starts running when interpretation is running application is not holding its hand and running with him it is one first and then the other but now how how dependent are both of them on each other oh desperately needed right there is no race if there are not these two working together okay Interpretation is not application. Application is not interpretation, though both of them need each other greatly. They both have to have their proper place and role in the relationship. And if you get them mixed up, there's going to only bring cloudiness to your mind about the passage. Interpretation of a passage must be established first so as to understand the meaning of the text and then all applications build from there. Okay? If you take an application of scripture that is not based on the meaning of the passage, you have a false application, even though it might be a theologically true idea. Okay? Interpretation is the understanding of the truth intention of the author. If you want a simple definition for interpretation, it's this. I'll say it again. It is the understanding of the truth intention of the author. The author has a truth that is intended to be spoken, and interpretation is the understanding of that truth intention. Okay? Another word that is associated with interpretation is meaning. Interpretation and meaning go together. Okay? Interpretation finds the meaning the author intended in the historical situation. Okay? That's interpretation. Meaning goes with interpretation. Let's define the word application. Application is the various ways that one may need to live in light of that one meaning. How I should go live my life in light of that meaning is an application. Okay? So, if you're studying a passage of scripture, how many interpretations are there? Well, let me, let me back up. How many meanings are there? One. one. You've got all kinds of interpreters approaching it. You may have lots of different interpretations, but there's only the one meaning. Now, when you get to an application, how many applications may there be from that one meaning? As many people as there are. 
and that's legitimate, as long as the applications are built off of the one foundation of the meaning in the text, okay? Let me give you another illustration. I think this is helpful. Um, interpretation is on one side, application is on the other, and there is a very low but solid three-foot cinder block wall between the two yards. Interpretation on one side, application on the other, okay? You can always see the other side from whichever side you are on, but you can't be in both yards at the same time. And that's probably a little too separated, but I'm, I'm trying to give you an idea of, you know, let these things be more separate than don't see them as one. See them as unified like a, a relay race, but, but they're not the same thing. Application and interpretation are not the same, okay? If you have the interpretation of the passage, oh, I, I understand what it means now. Close your Bible and go home. No, you're not done yet. You have to think of what if you've got the interpretation. Application. What needs to happen in my life? Okay? And you can't be so hungry for the application that you're not willing to put the work in to get the what? The meaning. The, meaning. the interpretation, right? Okay. Yeah. No, they're, they're very similar. They're, they're grouped together. You, you use guidelines for interpretation to get the truth intention so you understand the meaning of the author. So interpretation and meaning are the same. Meaning and application, not the same thing. Right. Not to be associated. Although we get very sloppy with those words. Let me ask you this. Remember the, um, the illustration I used? You, you come home, there's a note on the counter, uh, the light <coughs> is out in the hallway. Um, let me ask you this. Um, your wife wrote it at 10 o'clock in the morning. You get home at 6. Here's the question. Don't say anything out loud because you might be embarrassed if you give the wrong answer. Just think in your head. I'm trying to help you. Okay. When did that note have meaning? <coughs> as soon as it was written. Before you ever saw it. Before you even came into contact with those words, those words had meaning. <coughs> When you read them, they didn't all of a sudden have meaning. They had meaning before you. They had meaning after you. You are an interpreter. You had to use guidelines to find the meaning. But we are people who say, uh, what that passage means to me is, mm -hmm. and then we talk about how we should go do something. And we use meaning instead of the word application. And then when somebody else is sitting there in your small group and they hear you say, well, what that passage means to me is this, and it, that never crossed your mind, then you say, well, that's what that passage means to you. But what it means to me is now all of a sudden we have two meanings when instead, no, 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 we, do, we need to know what these, we need to know what means means. Okay, yeah, w w let me finish this real quick. So application, here's how I need to go apply that. And another guy in your small group may go, well, that's not what I thought of. What I thought of is I need to go apply it this way. That's okay, <coughs> but not meaning, because there's only one. Go ahead, Doug. Yeah. Why do you, why do you, why do you approach the Bible like that? Uh, be, yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we're sinners. Um, and and um, this communication matters more than any other communication because your soul depends on it. And uh, if you read um, the history of World War II, your soul doesn't depend on it. And so we don't do it there. Um, we also live in an era, a time, when it's really hot in here. Can somebody like bump some air down or something? 
Um, we live in a time where we, we um, there used to be a, a cultural time when people wrote their words and readers of those words understood, I would never want anybody to treat my words the wrong way, so I'm going to treat his words on the basis of how they are. We don't live in that day. Um, now, we talk about documents being living and breathing, flexing with time so that when I, as a reader, want them to have significance I want to massage those words and they mean something different now because I'm a reader and I'm very important. We're, we live in such a narcissistic age and we are more influenced by this than you know that yeah, it doesn't have meaning until I've read it. I bring, so we, we, that's the fishbowl you swim in and you are wet with that and you may not even know it. But that's what we have to fight against. That's, not the, that's why it's important for us to understand what m- the word meaning is. But when I say, it, it, boy, that was so meaningful, okay, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. When you read it, did it take on something? Is that what you're trying? No, no, no. What I mean is my life needs to change in light of that, and that's a meaningful thing for me is for my life to change. Great, I'm with you. You know what I'm talking about? So we have to be really careful about the things that we, how we talk about this. Um, one interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications. <coughs> Just make sure you actually find the one meaning of the text before you start multiplying applications. Number six, linger longer for a better life impact from the Bible. This expands on the relationship between interpretation and application. Um, I, I know you guys well enough that um, you are serious readers and studiers of the Bible. Um, you you want, you're after something very important good and good. You're looking for a life-changing, life-impacting application or encouragement from the Bible um, that will speak to whatever the issue is in your life that's going on. That's what you're coming to the Bible for. Um, Certainly God intends his words to impact your heart as you walk through life's daily events. But here's the caution, guys. How we get to those necessary necessary applications and implications for living is everything. We shouldn't get to life-impacting encouragements with the Bible open by doing violence to the meaning of the text. Okay, This is especially where we need self-control as we read and interpret Scripture with the hopes of living out a meaningful application. I mean, well, I really want to have a, an application that, that, that changes my life. It's possible to get in such a rush to experience a life-changing impact from the words that we are reading that we actually race right over those holy words and phrases and clauses, and we're just hastily looking for that thing which finally feels good, and, oh, those words felt good, I got it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. Guys, you do not have to work at all for that to feel right and good. Those are very encouraging words. They are. I'm not trying to diminish them at all. But you don't have to work for that. You can name your church 2911. People do. Um, have in Tempe. Um, the problem is we can arrive at that feel-good impact in some illegitimate ways with God's word. Think carefully about this, guys. It is possible 
for hurried readers, for even desperate readers. I'm just desperate to find whatever it is I want to go find for my life. I'm so desperate. It's possible that we can um, be desperate, that we can walk away from Bible reading, feeling good about the life impact that we have found, but God not be satisfied with how his word was handled. And wouldn't that be sad? That I would walk away just feeling like, oh man, my life just is so changed by that. And God's like, that is not at all what my word was there for. That's what you're trying to avoid. Okay? First, how do you do that? Train yourself, discipline yourself to desire the true meaning of a passage before you desire life impact. Guys, if you get in such a hurry for life impact and life change that you aren't interested in what the passage means, you're going to be in trouble. So train yourself. I desire first to understand what it means. I want that. Let that be. That's food for your soul. Meaning is food for your soul, not just life change. You, want, you don't want to be a narcissistic interpreter that just wants to go find something that feels good and scratches the itch for you. Find what the meaning is. Worship at the meaning level. Okay? That first. Then second, discipline yourself to not just want any kind of feel-good emotional impact from God's Word that isn't truly connected to the original intent. That means you've got to stay longer in the text. It just does. You've got to work for this. You've got to work a little bit longer for that. So let me, and we'll finish with this today. Uh, go, go, to, go to Jeremiah 29 because I, I think this is so helpful. And then we'll, I'll let you try to guess what I meant by the blanks and the rest of them. Yeah, good luck. Those are the, those are the secret things. <laughs> Jeremiah 29. You know verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's verse 11. Look at verse 10. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Why don't you feel good about that verse? Like you do about verse 11. I'm serious. So do you understand? I mean, it depends on what you're, what do I want? If what I want is something that's going to make me feel good and have a life impact, um, I may be very arbitrary and very, who's in command of the text at that point? Who, who determined that verse 11 had, was meaningful, but verse 10 wasn't? Not God. And I don't think you want to walk away from a passage feeling very much like, I love verse 11. Mm-hmm. And God says, but it means nothing apart from verse 10. Okay? So this is just where the, the, you have to be really careful. Uh, l- let, me, let me walk you back. Look at verse 1. <coughs> now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. 
The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, listen, three verses spent on telling you the situation from when the letter was written by Jeremiah to a group of people, the ones who were in exile in Babylon. God spent three verses telling you who it is and who it is not. Three verses. Here's what he says. Verse 4. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles. So God even one more time says, I'm talking to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Guys, have you done that? Have you built a house yet? You haven't? You need to get after it, right? Wait, we're not done. And plant gardens. So it says, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives. Have you, Luke, you got married yet? <laughs> and become fathers and sons and uh, fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and daughters. Give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. I sent you. Think of, now, now think about this. If, if the issue is, I, I need to know the God of this text. Now what I'm finding out is the God who promised Israel, this is the land I'm going to give to you, and now because of your disobedience, because I've read my Bible before this, I see now that you're going to, Yahweh is sending his people off into exile, into another city, and he's saying, seek the welfare of that city there, because in so doing, that's your own goodness. That's your own welfare. I'm taking care of you. By the way, all of the Jews who did not go with Nebuchadnezzar, who Jeremiah stayed with and who went down to Egypt, he killed them all. So go. What does this tell you about who your God is? That is your God. What is he like? What does he do? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy false. Are there anybody prophesying falsely to you guys? I mean, this passage really, I'm going to be honest, it has nothing to do with you or me. And it has everything to do with God. If I don't want that, but what I want is to feel good about I have something to go do, I'm missing it. I'm missing it. And God is going face palm. What are you doing? Those are my words. You would never want anybody to do that with your words. You see, it's not as hard as you think. But we do weird things with God's Bible. Okay. Yes. Aside from reading scripture over and over and being in accountability and being in the local church, um, are there any other ways to um, stay outside of the pitfalls of drawing? You know, because what you just described here that is that most of the time the application is simply thinking about God rather than making an application for you to go outside and go do. Um, what, what are some healthy things to uh, make sure that application drawing is accurate? Yeah, I think... Um, <coughs> if there's any priority of what helps yeah. you more. One of the things that I, I would... that I have at the end um, that... and it's just one simple thing, and there's so many more, and I wouldn't rush past the other things besides these things, what can I do? Um, those are really good things to do. And... Um, I think the way that I think about scripture now, 
um, and, and teach these things to you guys, not because I found a secret, but because I, I've just done these things. And you just need time doing these things. And, um, but one of the things that I think has been really helpful for me is do not, do not set as a goal. If you feel like what I've been trying to do is just, God, just tell me what to do. I want to go do what you, and that's been like kind of your approach to coming to the Bible. Don't, don't stop that adjust it but don't don't say well that's bad I shouldn't want to go do something after reading God's word um, rather instead of maybe having it out on the front end um, control yourself train yourself to say I want to worship more at the meaning level what does it mean our minds used to be hostile to God we were engaged in evil deeds they were impure and God in his word reveals his mind. And if my mind can understand his mind, just stop. I'm going to worship. A lot more error comes from the Bible. Yeah. If, if the Bible, listen, if the Bible is an, an instruction manual for how to run a, a Blu-ray, you're not trying to sit there and soak in it and try to get to know the author. Right? If the Bible is an instruction manual that just tells me what to go do, I'm probably not going to soak and try to get to know the author. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is first and foremost the revelation of a being who is God. And so what I'm trying to say is just put the cart before the horse. No, put the horse before the cart. <laughs> get, the, get the other way around the right way. And, um, and, and just worship God. What is he saying? I understand this. Oh, my goodness. Do you see who this God is? Um, I journal a lot these days, and I I write back to God with my Bible open. I write back to him what I see about him. And I try to spend more time just writing to him about him. That's my prayer. Um, what kind of God are you? You actually want to take care of these people whom are under your discipline. Um, that's the kind of God you are. So when, even when I'm under your discipline, you have an intent for me that you're watching over me. I didn't write myself into that. Yeah, you started with what you But I started with, that's the kind of yeah, God he had is. proper order. So <coughs> you, I think those are the kinds of things that you, you want to try to do, and that will make a big difference. Um, yeah, we're all out of time, guys. Um, why don't we pray? and uh, get on from here. Father, thank you for your kindness and your word to reveal yourself. I pray that you would bless these men's uh, pursuit of you. I pray, Lord, that as they pursue you, they would have their Bibles open, that they would want to know the, the God of the word in the words of God. And I pray, Lord, that um, as they see who you are, that they would not rush past worship, but just pause and linger a little bit longer and worship you, and Lord, that you would bring tremendous impact on their living from that, and that, Lord, you would bless them in that. Thank you for who you are, for revealing yourself to us, in your Son especially, and it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Amen.